So the passage on which the sermon is based is Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And in it, Jesus, he talks about two men going up to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, thus the reading that we just had, and the other is a tax collector. And we immediately know who's the good guy and the bad guy, don't we? The the Pharisee is clearly the bad guy because they're like always the bad guys in the Bible, while the tax collectors of the Bible tend to be presented in a a fairly uh, positive light, you know, humble, self-effacing. The only problem is that's that's the exact opposite of how the original audience would have heard it. Um, The good guys were the Pharisees. They were, for the most part, respected figures in their society, whereas the tax collectors, I mean, a tax collector back then was barely above pond scum. And so when Jesus' audience hears in Luke 18 that the tax collector goes home justified, um, they'd be like, that's crazy talk. And the Pharisee goes home rejected. That's crazy talk. But unfortunately, it plays into our preconceived notions about Phariseeism and tax collectors. And so the, the, the shock value, the punch of the passage, it, it's kind of like lost on us. Um, and so what I want to try and do in the sermon today is, is to try and help you feel the punch, um, the punch that was there for the first hearers. Uh, the parable is about grace and grace, when you really understand it, is, is a punch to the system. It's a shock to the system. It, it, it bothers you. Here's how I would say it. Grace bothers you before you ever love it. And, and I hope that we can explore some of that as we read in verse 9. To some who were confident of their righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Let's pray one more time. Speak, Lord, for we are listening to you. We want to hear the scandal of grace so that we might discover the true wonder of grace. Uh, We don't want to prop ourselves up and be cast to the ground. We want to humble ourselves and in your proper and good time, have you exalt us. Um, whatever that means, we pray you would do it. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, U.S. News and World Report came out with their annual college rankings a few months ago. They do it every year. It's a cash cow for them. They, they rank, they come up with some, they say it's objective, but largely arbitrary, uh, arbitrary, methodology to determine who, which are the best colleges in, in the United States of America. And for several years running, anybody know what is the, the top of the top of the top? Texas Tech, of course, AJ, your good alma mater. I, I think it came in second to the, the top of the heap, which was Princeton <laughs> University, the Princeton, Princeton Tigers, Princeton, New Jersey. And I, what I want you to do is imagine you've got a freshman in high school who's one of those 
high achieving kids, you know, they're, maybe they're a firstborn, but they're driven and they say to you at the beginning of their freshman year, like, I want to go to the best school in the United States. I'm a, I want to make it into Princeton. And so from day one, all the way through their senior year of high school, they're doing everything in their power to like build that resume. Um, they're what? They're, uh, taking niche extracurriculars, like they, they take fencing, because that's like the, the newest niche extracurricular, and um, oh, they're doing all the, the test prep, and they're been working so hard to get the 4.0 on their GPA, all these community service hours, on and on. They write the application essays, and then at the end, after weeks of anxious waiting, a letter arrives in the mail that says, congratulations, you know, you have been subject to the highest level of scrutiny, and we're pleased to inform you that you have been admitted with free tuition, room and board to Princeton University, the finest school in the country. You know, congratulations. As a parent, when you are reading that letter, how, how do you feel? What's going through your mind? Do you think at that moment, well, that's nice, but maybe there'll be a better opportunities to come along. I mean, no, at that moment, you feel one word, and that word, that word is righteous. Like capital R, righteous. Um, holding that letter in your hand, beaming from ear to ear, you're like, like, my kid did it. Yes, they did it. All that time and effort. Well, they didn't just do it. We did it. <laughs> we made it. We made the cut. It, and maybe even you say, I did it, because we have a way of just trying to live vicariously through our children. But, you know, we're the best of the best. And I think, I think that's probably what capital R righteousness feels like. With that in mind, look at verse 11. The Pharisee, it says, uh, he stood at a distance by himself. Um, the setting of this parable takes place in the temple, and it, we think it's most likely during um, either the morning worship service or the evening worship service during the morning sacrifice that would take place at dawn or the evening sacrifice that would take place from three to four in the afternoon. When we read that he's standing at a distance, it sounds as though he's being standoffish, but equally possible is just simply he's standing up close, like at the, in the front row of the church near the altar, like paying the closest attention to what's going on. Now, here's the thing. For you to understand the parable, you must get this. It's really simple. Tax collectors were way worse than we think they were, and Pharisees were way better. Like a tax collector would be the equivalent of, say, a mayor in a small French town in World War II who was, you know, getting themselves rich by passing on intelligence to the Nazis about the location of French forces. Like, a tax collector was not just an IRS agent. He was a traitor. In the lowest of the low. Um, someone who had betrayed the people that who you loved. A Pharisee, on the other hand, was really not that bad of a guy. <laughs> um, they were not priests. They were considered like zealous laymen whose, whose piety, who, who, who just longed for there to be revival and reformation to take place in what they thought was a spiritually lukewarm Israel. And so they thought that they could be those change agents by getting close to God, obeying God. I mean, a couple of examples are given in the story. Uh, one is 
tithing. So what they did is they looked at all of the 10% offerings in the Old Testament that were required. And it wasn't just one. You would have to tithe on this and tithe on that, you know, your dill and your cumin. What they did is they added up all of the offerings, the tithes, and came to the conclusion that God's word, his Torah, actually required 25% of their, their gross income to be given for the sake of the temple and temple worship. And so they did. They gave 25% of everything they made. Another example is fasting. So in, Jews were required to, to fast only one day a year on the holiest day, Yom Kippur. It was, a single fast was required. But the Pharisees were like, this, this world, our world is so bad right now. Like, we need to fast more frequently. And so they ended up fasting every Tuesday and every Thursday. And it wasn't just they didn't eat food. It was a complete fast, which meant that they didn't eat food and they didn't drink anything. And so there you have two examples. Fasting twice a week, giving 25% of your income away. Like, I want that guy in my church. <laughs> right? That would be the attitude we have. I want, you know, like, honey, you can bring him home. I might take him as a son-in-law, that type of, type of thing, you know. A Pharisee is welcome here anytime, but don't you dare bring that blood-sucking tax collector into my house. That's how they felt this passage. That's, that's, how, that's how it hit them. So we go back to verse 11. We have the Pharisee standing up close to the altar, and he, he prays in the customary form of prayer with his hands up and his eyes open, looking into heaven. He prays a prayer of thanksgiving. He says, God, I thank you that you didn't make me like these other people. You didn't make me a robber or an evildoer or an adulterer. And incidentally, that was actually the way that rabbis prayed in the Old Testament. The rabbi would pray, Blessed art thou, O God, for you have not made me a foreigner, a slave, or a woman. Like, I thank you for not making me this. Thanks for not making me a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer. And you know... But he was right. He was right. Because he wasn't that. He was not the most vile member of society any more than you are the most vile member of society. I mean, who would we consider to be the worst of the worst uh, in our culture? I mean, probably you know, somebody who abuses women or children, either physically or sexually. That's the worst of the worst. Um, maybe an out-and-out racist, Um, but, you know, a predator. We think that that's the worst of the worst. And so Jesus is framing this parable in such a way to take your breath away. He could have just as easily have said, two men came to reconcile church on a Sunday afternoon. One was a respectable Presbyterian, and the other was an abuser, an abuser of women and children. Both die in an automobile accident on their way home from church, both stand before God and are scrutinized intensely by the, the judge of heaven and earth. And in the end, the abuser is declared righteous and the other and the Presbyterian is not. By framing the parable in this way, it is like a very in-your-face message that grace, God's grace is scandalous. Like when you put it like that, grace is sh- shocking. Um, and, I, and I'd go so far as to say that if you've never, if, if you've kind of thought about the ways of God and you've never before thought like, it's unfair. Grace is just like totally unfair. Or I just 
can't imagine that that's the way that things really are with God. If you've never felt that before, then you, you probably haven't quite yet um, understood grace because grace is the great reversal. It turns the world upside down. It takes the lowest of the low. It takes the ethically scum of the earth and exalts them to the highest place. And it takes, it, you know, it takes the best of the best, quote unquote, the best of the best, and it puts them into the dust. Now, how does it do that? Verse 13. Verse 13, uh, the tax collector, it says he stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's a very evocative image, right? The beating of your breast, what do you think that signifies? It's like, it's a sign of extreme anguish. It's a physical demonstration. Here it is, all right? It's a physical demonstration that my heart is wicked. That's what he's doing. I mean, like, in the middle of our worship service, if somebody did that, like, sitting on the front row there, I raise my hands when I sing. But if I was, like, during the confession of sin, beating myself, that hurts. <laughs> like, an extreme demonstration of anguish and contrition. Like, if anybody expressed themselves like that publicly with us, like we'd be a little creeped out. And yet there are a few instances in the Bible where people have this kind of extreme response. And I, I was, I'm going to give them to you really quickly. And I wonder if you can find the, the common thread that runs uh, the link between them all. Here they are. First, Job 40, verse 4. Tyrone, is there any way to get me out of that monitor or am I just stuck in it? <laughs> Job 40, verse 4. Job, probably the most upstanding citizen of his day, right? Um, God, what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And he literally would have put dust and ashes on his face. Uh, Isaiah 6, verse 5, another holy upstanding prophet. Woe is me! He literally pronounces a prophetic woe, a, a curse upon himself. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Habakkuk 3.16, another prophet. Yeah, uh, this one gets me. I hear thee speak, O Lord, and my body trembles. He almost describes something like a seizure here. My body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. And then Revelation 1.17, John, he says, when I saw... Jesus Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. And what's the thread that runs throughout? Anybody? I mean, they all meet God. <laughs> like, they meet, like, the real God, not, not the Hallmark card God, right? But the, the real God. They come into the presence of the God who is real and holiness and glorious, who made the galaxies. And, and, and it's just devastating for them. It's a devastating experience. And I'll tell you, I mean, I've never had anything physically traumatic um, happen like that to me in meeting God. But, I mean, if I ever do get the opportunity to come into his presence unfiltered one day, um, I know that I'll melt. I'll absolutely melt in, in front of him. And, and so, so will you. Um, I, I mean, I'll be my breast. I'll be absolutely as desperate as this tax collector. It will be entirely traumatic um, because like, the distance is, 
the distance is so great between him and us. So I, I love this passage. It's one of the best passages for teaching young, young children. Um, because what you can do is you read the story, and then you, and you, then you do the spectrum. And I realize this may be overly simplistic, but, but work with me, because you can use this with children. Over here is God, and all of his majesty, all of his glory, all of his— I don't, I don't know if you saw the latest picture from the James Webb telescope this week— uh, the, the clarity of um, oh, the pillars of creation. So amazing. That's God. Over here is the most vile member of our society, like the, the abuser. And there's a vast, vast, vast chasm between the two. And then you ask, and then you ask him, um, and so where, where am I on this spectrum? Where am I? And the answer is like, okay, I'm, I'm probably right about here. Like, I mean, maybe a little better than the abuser, but like right about, like I, I am so far away from him. And, and that's why we both desperately need grace. They're so incredibly in need of grace. Now, and then, then you ask him the next follow-up question. Where on the spectrum does, is the, does the Pharisee think they are? And the Pharisee's answer is going to be, well, maybe he's right about here, or maybe he's a little farther to the right here, or here. And that's his fatal flaw, isn't it? That's where he's so dead wrong, is that he thinks that he's a great deal closer to God than the most vile member of, um, of his society. And yet, what Jesus is doing in this telling of the parable is he unpacks the one thing that, he, that God hates the most about the character of the Pharisee. And it's in verse 9, if you want to look there. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else. What is it that God hates so much about this guy? In a word, it's his contempt. It's his, it's his contempt for other people. Um, I, I don't have to tell you, do I, that contempt is a really big deal right now. <laughs> you know, in politics, being united by disdain and contempt for the other side, that is the political playbook of our day. Uh, that is Arizona politics. That's national politics. Like, respectful debate is boring because it humanizes your opponent. But angry, sneering put-downs can dehumanize them and makes it very easy for not having to treat them like an actual human being. And then what is the way that you prove to your, your group, your party, that you are pure in your loyalty? It, it's simply by going public with your contemptuous um, sneering words. And that's the way that politics is, is presently done today. I love how an older Christian uh, pastor put it. Like, why is this so wrong? It's wrong because contempt for a human being is an insult to God almost as grave as idolatry. For while idolatry is disrespect for God himself, contempt is disrespect for the being he made in his own image. Contempt says of a man, raka, which is like idiot, this fellow is of no worth in comparison to me. I attach to his person no value whatsoever. The man guilty of thus valuing a human being is thoroughly bad. And I, I won't get too political on us right now, but I, it just mystifies me that we have so many, so many people in America today who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ and yet who think it's, it's perfectly acceptable to just speak and, and put down the other side. As though, like, that's the type of politics Jesus endorses? Hardly. 
But I don't want to just point a finger at them and then absolve myself because the fact is the temptation for contempt towards another person is not just for the realm of politics, but like it runs, that danger runs through every one of our hearts. One of the greatest challenges for all of us is to not think this way, to not think that the world would be better off if everybody was more like me, (laughs) you know. I find that I think this way when I'm driving on the 101, (laughs) and I'm like, these idiot drivers, why don't they, why don't they speed up? They're going so slow. Why don't they drive more like me? That's what I'm asking. My bosses at work, they're dumb, they're lazy, they're disorganized. Why can't they get their act straight like me? Or you know, you know what it is that really uh, annoys me? What really gets on my nerves? This isn't true for me, but... but it is for a lot of people. It's parents who can't control their children in public. You know, right? I just can't stand it when, you know, a kid's in a department store and, and they're just throwing a fit. And, and why, won't the, why won't people parent more like me? And see, the thing is, consciously we don't say that, but it is implied in almost all of our judgments. Like, we just complain about the bad drivers but what we, are, what we are judging them against is a single standard, and that standard is me. It's me. <laughs> the more or less like you and the more like me is the implied standard that we enter into this world with. And it is a deeply contemptuous um, standard at that. Let me give you one more example of how contempt can dovetail with identity. Let's say your fundamental identity factor is, I have gone to a good college. I went to Princeton. Or or I have a successful, lucrative job. Or I'm really good at my job. I'm good at what I do. Or I've raised a great family and all my kids are are model Christians. Whatever is your identity factor, all those identity factors, they they have a level of self-congratulation. They they make you feel good about yourself through the joy of comparison— a joy that makes you feel superior towards those who do not have that identity factor. Because we feel better about ourselves than the guy who didn't go to the good school. We feel better than, than those families who are not quite up to par and better those, than those who aren't really great at their jobs. In fact, the better we are at something, the more likely we are to attach our identity to that something. Because that's, that something is what helps uh, you know, make us we feel good about that part of ourself. Um, it, it makes me who I am. And yet, if you're doing that comparative, I'm up, you are down, that elevation of, uh, of judgment will metastasize very quickly into um, a contempt for your fellow human being made in God's image. Um, or, or maybe the, it'll boomerang back on you and <laughs> you'll be contemptuous of yourself. Because what happens when you fail, when you don't live up, when, when you don't get in, when, when you aren't that great at your job, when you're not a great writer, when you start to fail, then now the, the self-loathing and hating yourself and, and lacking all sense of confidence, it's just the, the contempt, you know, boomeranging back on your head. Here's where I'm going with it. Is there any identity factor, is there any identity factor that doesn't lead to contempt? And yeah, there is one. Um, it's an identity that's based solely on what God has done for you in and through his son, Jesus Christ. It, that's the identity factor. Amen? That is the identity factor that will not breed contempt. I'm like, it's recognizing that if there's anything good going on inside of me, it's because God's given it to me in Christ. 
If there's anything um, in my favor, it's because God put it there in Christ. Like, without Christ, we're nothing. Without God's grace in Christ, we are absolutely nothing. And it's for that reason that contempt has no place in the life of a follower of Jesus. Because we're, we're nothing without grace. And that puts us on the same footing as every other human being. Okay, back to the parable. <clears throat> I said earlier, I kind of slipped it in there, that it's possible the parable is set during either the morning sacrifice or the evening sacrifice. You're like, well, how did you get that? Um, in the morning and evening sacrifice, the priest would slaughter a sacrificial lamb. He'd cut it into pieces and then take the blood of the animal and anoint the horns of the altar with the blood stains. And then he'd burn the offering. And in doing so, he would make atonement for sin. It's possible that the tax collector and the Pharisee were actually watching the ceremony when they prayed. You say, why? Because when the tax collector beats his breast, he says, God, have mercy on me. Only the word he used for mercy is not the normal word in the Bible for mercy. It's actually a word that's only used, I think, two other times in all of the Bible. And it means literally, be propitious to me. Or uh, that language is really kind of funky. Or make atonement for me. Like this big theological word, propitiation, it, it just happens when an acceptable sacrifice is made to atone for sin. The same word is found in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where we read, For this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God, and that he might make, and there's the word, the same word, God be merciful, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. It occurs again in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, or actually, it's a very similar word. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, as a propitiation in his blood. The beating of his breast, watching the sacrifice, is his expression of basically, God, be gracious to me through this blood. And what I want to say is if you're new to Christianity, um, if you're here, just thank you so much for coming and and discovering more about our community. But uh, Christianity offers a very unique view of salvation. It basically, what it offers is that you can be saved by sheer grace through Christ's work and not your own. Like we can't contribute at all to our salvation, be it through our moral effort or our religious observances or our prayers or our transformed consciousness. None of it. Nope, not a bit. Like it, it is only because of the cross. You know, the legalist says, The good people are in and the bad are out. And most religions are actually legalistic in nature. (laughs) The good people are in and the bad people are out. I mean, nowadays, we're much more relativist than we are legalist. And the relativist says, well, the tolerant people are in and the bigots are out. But the gospel says, those who know that they are not good and are wholly dependent on grace, they are in and the proud are out. Have you ever asked... God to pardon you the way the tax man did. <laughs> you know, what I found is the key to Christian growth and the Christian life is just, is focusing on grace, is having your heart be so reordered and, and attentive to the grace of God for you in the gospel. I mean, grace is, it, grace is the engine. It's the engine 
for spiritual growth. It's the engine for, for community formation. Grace creates the culture where, where it all can happen. And, and it has to be at the very top of the pyramid of, of values. Grace. It's all about grace. Uh, I'll conclude with this. If some of you grew up in Christian homes where grace was spoken, but it wasn't the operating principle of that home. Um, your family culture didn't operate by grace. You know, some of you maybe even, you, you went to a Christian school, and, and they were like, grace is important, but the culture was obey and you will be praised. Um, the culture looks down on others who aren't so obedient, or we shame you if you're not obedient. It is so important um, that if God, if you ever have kids, if God ever gives you children, to like create in your home a culture of grace where grace really is the operating, you know, principle. Um, and you do that by saying repeatedly to your kids, like, you don't get my love and approval because of how well you performed. Um, you don't get my love and approval by being useful or being the good guy or getting into Princeton or hitting the game-winning shot or getting the lead in the, pray, in the play. You don't get my love that way because I never got God's love that way. Um, I got God's love as a free gift. And I love you by grace because God first loved me by grace. And the only thing, if there's anything good about us, good about me, it's that I have nothing going for me except, except the sacrifice on that altar. And that's, that's the culture, you know, you've got to create in, in your home. And I mean, I hope that's the kind of culture we're creating here at Reconciled Church. You know, karma, karma says you get what you deserve. Uh, through Jesus, that is never true. <laughs> it's never true. Through and in Jesus. I love you. I love the present version of you. I love the future version of you. I love you with all my heart as you are right now. And I treat you the way that God treats me, which is holy through mercy and grace. Let that be true of, uh, of our home and our church culture. Amen.